0: The following program is sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Today from Philip DeCourcy on Know the Truth.
1: When the road of life all of a sudden becomes crooked and you're throwing a curveball and you're not sure what end is up and what God's up to, Solomon's got something to say. He's got wisdom for all of those experiences when bereaved, when berated, when bewildered. But we're going to look at the first section, verses 1 through 4. Solomon says, live and learn when bereaved.
0: Welcome to Know the Truth with author, pastor, and Bible teacher, Philip DeCourcy. We're continuing our series called The Quest for the Best, and Philip is opening to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, inviting us to reflect on our lives and our legacy. We're learning that God's Word offers us a lens for viewing good times and bad. And in times of bereavement, when bad things happen and death is staring us down, we can remain calm and full of faith. So here's Philip DeCourcy in a message titled,
1: Live and Learn life is a matter of learning and living you'd have to agree with that what do we say you live and learn those of us who would make the most of life need to be those who are enthusiastic lifelong learners who are eager students of god eager students of life eager students of human nature You and I need to live and learn. And as we step back in to the book of Ecclesiastes and we go through the door of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we find King Solomon in a reflective mood. He's perusing. He's pondering life. He's taking stock of what life has taught him so far. Providence and experience has taught him a series of lessons that he wants us to. To learn, he desperately wants to pass on what's good for us. See, he left the question hanging at the end of chapter 6. For who knows, verse 12, what is good for man in life? He left that question hanging. What's good for man in life? And now he sets out to answer it in chapter 7, especially in verses 1 through 14. He shows us what's best. He shows us what's better. In verse 1, he tells us a good name is better than expensive perfume. In verse 1, he tells us the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. In verse 2, he tells us mourning is better than festivity. In verse 3, he tells us sorrow is better than laughter. In verse 5, he tells us a rebuke from a wise man is better than the praise of fools. In verse 8, he tells us the end of a thing is better than its beginning. In verse 8 and 9, he tells us patience is better and waiting for god's timing is better than fretting over the elusive things of life. In verses 10 through 12 upon further reflection he tells us that affliction may be better than immediate outward good. There's a lot of lessons that Solomon has learned and life has taught him and he wants to tutor us in that reality. What we have, in fact, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 14, is Solomon returning to his true form. We have a series of proverbial statements, and Solomon's famous for this. He's renowned for this. In fact, he was part, along with others, of writing the book of Proverbs. In chapter 12 and verse 9 of this very book, Ecclesiastes, we're told that indeed the writer the preacher, the teacher, is one who has set out in order many proverbs. And so Solomon returns here to true form, and he starts to pass on to the next generation some life enhancing lessons. Lessons that have cost him dearly, that he passes on to us free of charge. And he wants us to know that wisdom is a good inheritance. Scroll down to verse 11. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Solomon is saying, look, every good Israelite wants to pass on an inheritance to his family. In most cases, it was the land that they had been allotted from the time of Joshua. But sometimes." a family would fall in hard time and they would sell that land and they'd have some money as a defense against some desperate times. And then in the year of Jubilee, that land would be returned to them every seven years. And so Solomon's saying, look, an inheritance is a good thing. Money can be a defense against tough times. But better than an inheritance, better than money is wisdom. And he's really saying to every parent and every father and every mentor, whatever you pass on to others, pass on time-tested truth, the wisdom of God's Word. And that's what Solomon is doing here. So let's begin to look at this passage. And we're going to look at it this morning, and we're going to look at it next Lord's Day morning. If you want to break up these 14 verses into two sections, you might break it up like this. In verses 1 through 4, we have lessons from death to the living. And then in verses 5 through 14, we have lessons from life for the living. Now, I'm going to break the passage up into three sections. And we're just going to cover the first one this morning, verses 1 through 4. In verses 1 through 4, Solomon says, live and learn when bereaved. Times of loss and sorrow can be a great teacher. In verses 5 through 6, Solomon says, live and learn when berated. What are you going to do when you're criticized? What are you going to do when somebody pulls you onto the mat? Solomon's going to tell you what to do in verses 5 through 6. And then in verses 7 through 14, he says, live and learn when bewildered. When the road of life all of a sudden becomes crooked and you're throwing a curveball and you're not sure what end is up and what God's up to, Solomon's got something to say. He's got wisdom for all of those experiences when bereaved, when berated, when bewildered. But we're going to look at the first section, verses 1 through 4. Solomon says, live and learn when Bereave. Let's go to verse one and let's read it together again. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death and the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men. And the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools in the house of mirth. In these verses. Solomon comes back to some familiar turf, namely the subject of death. And so Solomon in this passage has us confronting the raw reality of our own demise. That's certain. That's sure. I want you to imagine Solomon's taking us on a walk. We're walking down a particular street, and we're about halfway down the block, and you can hear coming out of the windows of this particular house, a lot of noise, a lot of music, a lot of laughter. You can tell, you know what? There's a party going on in there. And Solomon ushers us past that house. We're not stopping there. We're not staying there. He takes us down the street, turns the corner. We're about a half a block away, and he darts in with us into a funeral home. And there we're confronted with a father who's weeping over the loss of a child. Mother who's heartbroken, brothers and sisters who are in abject despair. And he says, Look, sit down and observe. We're not going anywhere. Because it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. A funeral will improve your life in ways that a festival never will. Okay, the Orange County Fair's on right now. And you and I could go to it and have a blast. You know, we could eat ourselves silly. We could listen to live music, play some of the game. Nothing wrong with that. But we won't come out a better person for that. Those are moments when you kind of get lost and you forget about the serious matters of life and the weightier issues of death. The Orange County Fair won't do any one of us any long-term good. But you know what? I've attended a couple of funerals this past couple of weeks for members of our congregation. One of our men lost his mother. One of our brothers lost his wife. I found that rather sobering. Looked into a couple of open caskets and reminded myself, my day is coming. That's sobering. And it's also sanctifying. And Solomon would say, that's good. It's good sometimes to waken yourself out of the silliness of what life can become and really waken up to the realities. And Solomon's not being gothic here. Solomon's not being morass, he's just being realistic. You know, elsewhere he'll say a merry heart is a good medicine. A merry heart is a continual feast. You read about that in the book of Proverbs. But I think Solomon is reminding us, look, life is to be enjoyed. In fact, in the chapter before, he told us again to eat and drink and enjoy God's good gifts. But he is saying this, that good times must never be premised upon pretending that bad things don't happen okay? Enjoy the good times. But remember that death is stalking you all the time. You need to be sobered up to that reality. And then he would probably say that, but it's the bad times that makes the good times better. It's darkness that makes the light all the more luminous. It's hatred that makes love all the more glorious. It's death that makes life all the more precious. Death is the appointed destiny of all living creatures, and we need to take that to heart. Did you do any sober reflection this week on the brevity of your life and the certainty of your death? Did that motivate you in any way to action? Did it curb your appetites? Did it make you choose something in the light of eternity? Not in the press of the moment, not on impulse, Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Number your days so that you might learn wisdom. That's true, isn't it? Death has a way of prioritizing life and minimizing stuff. An open grave, and I've stood by one just recently. An open grave reminds us that life is not the 99 cent store where everything is of the same value. You know, you can go to the 99 cent stores. Nothing for 50 cents, nothing for five bucks. It's all 99 cents. But life's not like that. There are some things more precious, more pressing, more important than other things. And death helps us switch the price tags of life. So let's come to this section, verses one through four. There's two things I want to say. Actually, Solomon wants to say, and I'm going to say it for him. He's written it, but I'm going to speak it. Death interprets a man's life, verse 1. And death instructs a man's life, verse 2 through 4. Death interprets a woman's life. Death instructs a woman's life. Let's look at verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death and the day of one's birth. And that's an interesting statement there at the end of verse 1. What does Solomon mean when he says that the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth? Sounds rather pessimistic. I mean, given the harsh realities of life, and Solomon has catalogued them from the beginning of this book, is Solomon saying, you know what, death comes as a release. It's an escape hatch from this frustrating world of ours. I think that's too pessimistic. Remember, this book is headed to a very positive conclusion. Fear God, keep his commandments, for in this man finds his whole duty and his whole delight. Now, I don't think Solomon's being overly pessimistic here. He doesn't have a death wish. I'll tell you what I think Solomon's saying. Solomon's not saying that death is better than life as such, as much as he's contrasting the bookends of life, the day of your birth, the day of your death. And he reminds us of this solemn fact, that if the day of your birth proves to be better than the day of your death, then your life has been a waste. I think that's what this verse is saying. Let me say that again. If the day of your birth proves to be better than the day of your death, then your life's been a waste. The day of your death should be better than the day of your birth. Because you see, when we're born... All people can do is anticipate the good that we're going to do, the things we're going to accomplish. Hopefully that son, hopefully that daughter is going to make something of their life. But only time will prove it. Only the passage of time will help us to see if people have abused the gift of life that God has given them or really done something for God's glory and for the advancement of humanity. That's the point our death interprets our life. The ink dries at death and then we get to read how a person lived and we can then come to a firm conclusion. They were good or they were bad. That's what's going on here. In fact, when you link the end of verse one to the beginning of verse one, that's exactly what Solomon's saying. He's saying, look, when you come to the end of your life, you want to die with a good reputation. You want to die with a noble name. You want to die with a lingering legacy. A good reputation is better than expensive perfume than the day of one's death than the day of one's birth. You see, when a person is born, you can only measure his life in terms of its potential. When he dies, you can look back on what he actually accomplished. And you and I need to remind ourselves of something. Our name and our deeds, which ultimately comes together in a reputation. Our name and our deeds live longer than we do. Like the lingering fragrance of perfume, our name lingers. Our legacy hangs around and either affects the next generation for good or for ill. Have we set them a high bar to reach to Have we shown them the paths of righteousness? Have we taught them the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have we taught them what's important and what's not important? This is a powerful, powerful section in chapter seven. If you die with a good name, then death holds no terror. And the day of your death will be better than the day of your birth. But if you die with a bad name, having wasted God's good gift, having never turned to faith in Jesus Christ, having never lived for the glory of God, having never left a godly heritage to your children, left them some financial security, loved them, led them. If you die with a bad name, then the day of your birth is better than the day of your death. And in some ways you will wish and others will wish you had never been born. That's Solomon's point. Death interprets life like the lingering smell of perfume. Has the person left a good reputation? Does their life amount to a sweet smell? Or does their life amount to a foul stench? What's your legacy going to be? How are you going to be remembered? Are you going to give the pastor something to say at your funeral? Or is he going to be scrambling to find some nice things to say in very kind of indistinct language? Or can he truly say that that person was a lover of God, a believer of the Bible, a lover of the lost, and one who shared the love of God with neighbor and friend and enemy alike? When you and I die, will our name smell like Chanel 5 or toilet water? to be quite honest. Haven't quoted Wiersbe in a while, and I love him, so he's Jew, and here he is today. Ecclesiastes 7, Wiersbe says this, love this, the memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. That's a verse out of Proverbs 10, 7. And Wiersbe says this, Mary of Bethany anointed the Lord Jesus with expensive perfume, and its fragrance filled the house. Remember that? The old Judas didn't like that. Hey, what's going on? It's a waste of money. Leave her alone. You know, Jesus is enjoying it. And Jesus told her that her name would be honored throughout the world, says Wearsby, and it is. On the other hand, Judas sold the Lord Jesus into the hands of the enemy. And his name is generally despised. When Judas was born, he was given a good name, Judah, which means praise. It belonged to the royal tribe in Israel. By the time Judas died, he turned that honorable name into something shameful. That's the point. A good name is better than rich, expensive perfume and the day of one's death and the day of one's birth. See, Mary's act, her spontaneous, outrageous love for Jesus Christ, we still think about it today. When we think about Mary of Bethany, we remember that's a good woman. What do you think of when you think of Judas? You think of a sad sniveling snitch a betrayer of the very son of god you wouldn't name your dog judas let alone your children that's ecclesiastes 7 verse 1. interesting this week when i was studying i learned that in the city of geneva where john calvin was holed up during the reformation in europe as protestantism spread they had an interesting habit They had an interesting custom and tradition in the city of Geneva among the Protestants of Switzerland. When a child was born, they mourned. And when someone died, they celebrated. That seems to be back to front. Seems to be upside down. But here's their rationale. In fact, there's a theology that lies behind it. Here's their point. See, when a child is born, it's born shapen in iniquity. It's born, according to the psalmist, separated from God from its mother's womb. It's born a child of Adam. It's a child of wrath. According to John 3, the wrath of God abides upon those who are born. They're born with a sin nature. They're born separated from God. And that's something to be mourned. Because if things don't change, they will experience the judgment of God. Someday they will fall headlong into a Christless hell. What parent would wish that for their child? What fear foreboding grabs the heart of every parent in in Geneva? The child is born, but the child's not saved. It's a child of wrath. It's a son of Adam. But hopefully at some point, that child, having known the Scriptures, is made wise unto salvation. That person, boy or girl, man or woman, closes in with the offer of God's mercy through faith in Jesus Christ. Realizing what God had done in Jesus Christ for them on the cross, they put their faith where God put their sin. And the Damocles sword of God's wrath is lifted. And there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And they begin to live for God's glory. They redeem the time. And then comes their death. And the people celebrate. Because he or she who was born a child of Adam is now dying as a son and daughter of God. Heaven awaits them. That's the point. It's a good custom, isn't it? The time to celebrate is death because the life is being lived and if there's a good name, if there's a good reputation, if there's a legacy, then it's time to celebrate.
0: You're listening to Philip DeCourcy on Know the Truth. Today's message from Ecclesiastes reminds us that death interprets life and it's part of the Quest for the Best series, available online or on CD. Get all the details when you visit ktt.org. That's also where you can sign up for the free email devotional from Philip DeCourcy. Every week you'll receive an uplifting reflection from God's Word delivered right to your inbox. Take a moment to subscribe online today. Again, go to ktt.org. At Know the Truth, we're passionate about proclaiming God's Word with boldness, clarity, and conviction. And we're not alone. There are friends like you who come alongside us to bring Philip's teaching to the radio and the Internet. One of the best ways you can make an impact is by signing up to become a Truth Ambassador. Your donation every month adds a greater level of stability to the ministry of Know the Truth. And when you become a Truth Ambassador, you'll have the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping us reach listeners like Jacob, who writes, Through your messages, I've discovered that the Bible is modern and applicable to my daily life. Pastor Philip has helped me see God as a loving Father who I can rely on to get me through my problems and worries. Well, helping listeners like Jacob is why we're here. And whether you sign up to become a Truth Ambassador or simply give a one-time donation of $20 or more, we'll say thanks by sending you a resource that presents the most important facts for the resurrection, titled, The Resurrection in You by Josh and Sean McDowell. This pocket-sized book will bolster your faith with the facts. Request The Resurrection and You when you make a donation by phone at 888-644-8811 or online at ktt.org. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Tomorrow, Philip DeCourcy continues his message, Live and Learn. Don't miss Wednesday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth, Incorporated. Jesus said, You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We're here at CreditRepair.com, the most recognized name in the industry when it comes to resolving credit report issues and getting that credit score up. With me, I got Aaron. Aaron, what happens when people call CreditRepair.com? A lot. Just one call gets any listener a free credit score, free credit report, and a free personalized credit evaluation right over the phone. In just a few minutes, you'll know exactly what's hurting your credit and get a personalized game plan to help restore it. And that can make a huge difference when it comes to getting those things that we want, like a new car a new house,
1: or even a brand new job.
0: Absolutely. Your credit score is one of the first things lenders look at, and our proven process can help remove those unfair or inaccurate items like late payments and collections from your credit report. In fact, on average, people who have used our service have seen significant improvement in their credit scores month after month. What are you waiting for? Call CreditRepair.com today. Call 800-851-5318. That's 800-851-5318.
1: 800-851-5318.